You're listening to the Two Tongues Podcast. And now your hosts, Kyle and Chris. What's up, you guys? Just let that music roll. Set the mood. Okay, that's enough. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. I'm coming at you again with some opinion scholarship, wrapping up our exploration of the philosopher Walter Stacy. Um, we did it in three parts. I feel pretty good about that. I didn't pick his largest book, but we did it. We did it, you guys. So I want to talk to you a little bit here about um, the last bit of the book. If you guys remember, the first episode we talked about his his idea of God, um, which sort of splits down the middle. Um, he talks about the negative divine. And then in the second episode, we focused on what he calls the positive divine. And um, uh, and I guess the gist really is that to understand God, you have to understand both the negative and the positive divine together. And so you have something like a paradox. You have something like this mythological symbol of the Ouroboros that we talk about all the time. The union of opposites, the paradoxical union of opposites. So we see this symbol in, in mythology, and, and we see it, you might say, coded in our more sophisticated religious ideas. I mean, as you know, mythology is what religion was once upon a time, so it's evolved from a storytelling to a certain, you might call it revelation or something that's captured by, you know, the um, monotheistic holy texts that we're accustomed to in the West and familiar with. Um, what we're going to talk about today is interesting. It kind of falls along the lines of something I've mentioned a few times uh, before, which is the difference between what I what I might call religion versus dogma. And I've tried to explain this many times before, but really the idea is if you have a mystical experience, if you have a religious experience, if you have an experience of God, then you have some legitimate basis for having mystical ideas, mystical thoughts, um, saying things that religious people say about, you know, being eternal, God being eternal, about there being an afterlife, about, you know, all kinds of things that may be attached to that. And um, it's one thing to have those experiences yourself and another to believe um, wholeheartedly somebody else's experience. And this is kind of what religion is. And I, I, the example I used before was like, look, Moses... He saw a burning bush. He heard the voice of God. He received the revelation. Did you see a burning bush? Oh, oh, you're a Jew or you're a Christian? Okay, good, but did you see a burning bush? Did you hear the voice of God? Did you have that experience? No. And so many people think that those sorts of miracles don't happen anymore, that those sorts of revelations don't happen anymore. And I think, or if they ever did, right, because we have a very atheistic paradigm that we all exist in today. Um, I would push back and say, what, what do we mean by revelation? That we're so sure it doesn't exist anymore. That God doesn't speak to us anymore. Is it possible that having some different understanding of what that means would change your mind? And Walter Stacy talks about this as well. He talks about... Um, the role that mystics have in creating religion, but not like 
not like creating religion is done for any like personal gain. Not like I'm a cult leader creating a religion so I can have power over other people or something like that. It's simply sharing their experience of God and inspiring other people by that to want their own experience or to maybe even take secondhand what my experience is some kind of um, unquestionable truth or some kind of bedrock that they can rely on. It's like, if I trust you, that you had an experience of God, if I trust you, I can kind of take your word for it. And so there's a role that religion has. It is a secondhand, religion is a secondhand mystical experience. It's it's hearing stories of somebody else who had an experience of God, whether that person be Jesus or Moses or Muhammad or Buddha or wh- whoever you want, right? You read you read those holy books, those histories, and it's somehow some kind of secondhand version. So the first-hand version might be best, and it's possible. It's a it's a possibility for us all. And so Stacy talks about this uh, this idea of um, of mystic experience, um, even though it's ineffable, like he talked about when he talked about the negative divine, even though it's impossible to put into words, mystics do a lot of, of speaking about it. Why do they do that? Um, better yet, if they wrote it down and made it some sort of a holy book, why do they do that? So there is a reason for that. It does serve a purpose, but it's not the ultimate purpose. So I don't want to spoil it. Let me just jump right in. Um, the first section I'm going to call religious symbolism. It begins like this. What religious symbols stand for is not a literal proposition, but an experience. Okay, so I'll stop there to remind you that when Stacy talks about this religious experience, this mystical experience, this all one with the universe sort of hippy dippy experience you sometimes hear about from, you know, um, from, from, from hippies and psychedelic uh, users and, and various types of new age people. That's a real thing. That's a real experience. And Stacy says that experience is not just one experience that's possible for you to have among others. What that is is an experience of God, of becoming God, of being God. And that's not, it's, it's really hard to speak about too directly, but, but that, that experience is an experience of God. So that's kind of what I mean when I say, if I have an experience of God and share that experience with you, that may be good for you, but it's not you having the experience of being God. That's a whole different thing. So when he says that religious symbols aren't a proposition about God, they're there about about this experience that is God. He says, the symbol does not mean, but evokes the experience. And this is where we start to see the value in secondhand mystical experience. The symbol does not mean, but evokes the experience. So imagine any kind of religious ritual that you may have participated in, um, baptism or high mass if you're a Catholic, there's lots of interesting visuals and things going on there. Um, uh, try to imagine or fantasize about some ancient religious ritual. Maybe it's a Masonic ritual. Maybe it's a you know sacri- sacrifice happening in Aztec Mexico or something. Try to imagine the symbolism surrounding a ritual. And ask yourself why it is that human beings would do that, especially if the ritual is a reenactment, which is the case. A lot of religious rituals are a reenactment of, let's say, the creation story. 
the story about how the world came into be and how the how the human beings came to be. They reenact this story, and there are images, chanting, maybe there's music. There's all kinds of representations there. Maybe it's something that the priest is holding. It's a staff. It's a symbol. It, you know, it's the way they're dressed, the way they're moving. Um, all of this is is symbolic, right? All everything in the ritual is symbolic. It points to something. It means something, even if you don't know what it what it means. And what he's saying here is that the symbol doesn't mean what the religious experience is. Symbol doesn't mean God, but it does evoke or can evoke the experience of being God, that mystical experience. So the symbol has the power of evoking something that's already in you. And he, this, is, this is how he explains it. He says, the words evoke in us a measure of the same experience which the author of them had and this is where it gets really good for me. I love this. He says, Our spirits vibrate faintly in unison with the soul of the mystic as a tuning fork vibrates in response to the sound of a bell. But it is our own experience which is evoked. It is not his experience which is being communicated to us. His words are as a grappling iron let down into the depths of our subconscious which draw our inner experiences nearer to the conscious threshold. So the mystic telling you about his mystic experience is like he's saying, like a grappling hook being lowered down into the deep, you know, dark depths of our, of our unconscious and is helping to lift out of that this experience for ourselves. Right? It's not, it's not his experience that I'm experiencing. But his experience is, of, is evoking that same experience within me. Right? So you can see how, if that's true, then religion, even if it is secondhand, contains symbols that are designed to evoke that experience in me. It's like that potentiality is deep in there somewhere. It's, it's common. The religious impulse is common, or, or instinct, or intuition, is common to all human beings. It's in there, in the, in the unconscious somewhere, as a potentiality. And religious symbols have, the, have this power of making us aware of it. And as we become increasingly aware of it, we bring it from the unconscious slowly up into the conscious realm, slowly up closer and closer to that point where we too can have that experience firsthand. I don't know of any religion, of any mainstream church or organization that teaches that religious exercise or religious discipline leads to that. That if you f concentrate and focus on this, you can have an experience of God. I, I don't know that it's explicitly said in any major religion that that is the purpose of religion. I wish, I wish it was. I wish it was more plainly put. It, it almost sounds exciting. It sounds like a challenge, but an adventure. And one that, you know, it's hard to imagine a more important one than to have an encounter with God, Right? All right, he says, How religious language evokes mystic experience in us can no more be answered than the question how music evokes in us feelings, moods, emotions. Right? I think that's an interesting analogy, right? Because 
music doesn't have any obvious meaning. Like it doesn't, if it's just music, if there aren't words to it, there are patterns and all that, of course, that, you know, we may say that there's somehow meaning, in, you know, encoded in that, but it's not obvious to us. It's definitely not conscious. And if I'm listening to music, I might, I might feel joy. I might feel sadness. I might feel all kinds of things. It might change my feelings, my moods, evoke emotions, bring things out of me. What is that? It's very hard to explain that. And he's saying that religious symbols are like that, right? They're like music bringing something out of us. And the thing that they bring out of us is this potential for having this mystical experience, for having this connection, um, unity, oneness with, with God. He says, the divine moment... Okay, now remember, when he uses all kinds of words to talk about the mystic experience, the divine moment, the mystic illumination, all, all these different things. When he says the divine moment, he means God, the experience of being God. It's not a concept. It's not something understood intellectually. Um, it's something that is felt. It's known by being, right? It's not communicated to you. It's known by being. So the divine moment is God. He says the God within the subconscious of the non-mystic somebody who's not had that mystic experience, or not yet, it says, projects influences into the upper levels of his conscious life, which, which appear in the form of vague feelings. And these include his moral intuitions and value judgments. All right, let's pump the brakes. What is he saying here? He's saying that even for, with someone who's not had the mystic experience, that possibility is still latent in you, subconsciously or unconsciously. And remember, that experience is God. So you might just reword that and say, God is latent within you. It's there all the time. It's there right now. Even if you don't know it, it's unconscious. You can make it conscious. But for most of us, it's not. So the God within projects influences into our conscious life. So psychologists talk about, talk about this all the time. The things that we refuse to be conscious of, the things that we are unconscious of, we project into the world. So you might say, you know, I'm, I'm you know, let's say I'm cheating on my significant other or something, and I feel guilt about it, but I don't, I don't want to admit it, so instead I, I find myself accusing my significant other of cheating. It's like, what am I doing? You're projecting, right? You're projecting this unconscious thing you're hiding. Something like this is what he's talking about. The God within projects these influences on you. You don't know where it's coming from. It just seems like it's happening. This is what he, he calls them vague feelings. Like, where are these feelings coming from? And what do they mean? I just keep feeling it. And when they come in the form of moral intuitions, like, oh, you know, this is right, this is wrong. This is better, this is worse. Where do those sorts of things come from? And what about your value judgments? What you find important, what you find valuable, what, what draws your attention? It's different for everybody. Why is it that for you? Why do you value that thing? It's not something you feel like you're entirely in control over. In fact, you don't feel like you're in control over it at all. Can you control, decide what it is that fascinates you? No. So these are vague feelings that are coming from somewhere, and they're pointing to something. Where are they coming from, and what are they pointing to? That's a fucking mystery. That's like God speaking to you. If you could only hear it. And that brings me to my next section, which is called Truth, Reality, 
illusion. It starts like this. God is the truth. He is also the supreme reality. We have to inquire what truth and reality mean as applied to God. They are, of course, symbolic. But in what way are these symbols appropriate? Okay, so let me stop there for a second. I want to remind you what he means by symbolic, because he talked about this in the last last episode. He's like, there are things that we say about God, like God is truth, or that God is love, or whatever it might be, things that we say like that. And they aren't literally true. And he said that. He's like, we don't literally think God equals love. Not literally. But there's something about love that is also true of this concept we're calling God. There's some, there's some thread that runs through both love and God. It's hard, it's hard, maybe impossible, to say what that is. But you can kind of see the resonance. And when he says here that truth and reality are applied to God, these are symbolic, right? It's like God isn't truth. God doesn't equal truth if, if by truth we mean the opposite of a lie. God doesn't, doesn't uh, um, equal reality. Like there, God is transcendent as well as imminent. So it's more than what we mean generally when we say reality. So these are symbolic. They mean something, but it's not, it's not entirely clear what that is. You know, it's like, Going back to that tuning fork idea, it's like something resonates with as true to you. It's not so cut and dry as a as an argument. It's not so cut and dry as some logical deduction, but there's something to it. Okay, when he says truth and reality, um, they're symbolic, but we have to figure out in what way those symbols are appropriate. This goes back to something, an example he used before where he said... Um, even though whatever God is is not something that, that can be captured in, in a concept. If I say to you that God is love, and I say to you that God is hate, I can't really prove um, either way if either of those propositions are true, but something seems more appropriate, something seems more true about the statement God is love than the statement God is hate. And most everybody on earth who's ever lived would agree with that sentiment. There's something reverberating in you that says, you know, this, this truth idea, this love idea is more appropriate than the other way. And that's what he's asking here. In what way are truth and reality appropriate symbols to be applied to God? Then he says, truth, I suggest, means the sense of revelation, an utterly irresistible feeling of conviction. This is the most powerful, compelling, overwhelming experience of which the human mind is capable. It cannot be denied. The soul stands utterly convinced. All right, so if you receive the revelation, and I'm just picturing this like you would see it pictured in the Bible, the sky opens up, the light shines down, booming voice from God, maybe you see an angel, maybe you see wheels within wheels within wheels, right? But you have some revelation like that, some experience like that. If you had that experience, would you be able to deny that you had that experience? Would you be able to bury that down and never talk about it again? Would you be able, would you be able to doubt that experience? Like even, even somebody who's sick, like even somebody who's just like a schizophrenic or something and, and really well down that, down that uh, uh, avenue, 
um, you're not going to be able to convince them that they're hallucinating. It's like it's real to them. If you had a revelation, it would be like that. It's real to you. There's no, there's no debating it. And this is something that, that people who have mystic experience say. That it's something that feels realer than real. It's beyond reproach. It's not something that can be doubted. Cannot be denied. As he says, the soul stands utterly convinced. So that's truth. Then he moves on to reality. He says, God as the supreme reality implies degrees of reality. Right? If God is the supreme reality, that sort of implies that there are lesser realities. Some things are more real than others. And God is the most real of them all. There is, however, no literal sense of the word real in which there are degrees. Okay, he says, reality means existence. But there are no degrees of existence. A thing either exists or it does not. Okay, so this idea of degrees of reality is going to become important, which we'll see here in, in a bit. But having this feeling that when you've become God and mystic illumination, that you have seen some reality that you were never um, privy to before. And it's so much grander than what you thought, what you would have considered real prior to that experience. It makes your experience of real seem pale, you know, by comparison. It sets the standard for real somewhere that's not in the here and now physically. It's very strange. It's like if what's most real to you used to be, you know, your, your friends and family, the, the space and time and the sun and the sky. That's the most real thing, like that, that, that tomorrow is going to happen. That's the most real thing. Um, and then you have a mystic experience, and all that seems like nothing. And the thing that you call the most real at that point is something that you can never point to, you can never touch. It's not physical. It's not bound by space and time. It's something that you would have five seconds before, said was not real. And now that thing is the most real. It, it puts you in topsy-turvy land. That's what a mystical experience does. It puts you in topsy-turvy land, and it makes you reconceptualize and resynthesize everything you ever experienced based on that. Right, he says, light will be thrown on this if we consider why in some religions and philosophies, the world is called an illusion, right? So if I have this experience of God, and it's realer than real, it's the realest goddamn thing I've ever, I've ever experienced or ever could experience, and then I come back to my normal, you know, sober waking consciousness, I'm thinking, well, that's not so real anymore. Then, then it starts to, you can start to appreciate how somebody might think of the world as an illusion, once they're once they're comparing the world to this other thing. And he says, illusion is the opposite of reality. God is real, the world is not real. In India, we find the world is Maya, which means illusion. He said, Western philosophies use some milder terms such as appearances or phenomenal existence, which implies some comparatively low degree of reality. 
So in the West, we're not just saying the world is illusion. We're saying the world is just appearances. The, the, what we call the world is phenomenal existence. There's some other type of existence, something that isn't appearances, something that isn't phenomenal. There's some more to it. And so that makes the a phenomenal part um, some comparatively low degree of reality. It doesn't compare, it doesn't shine as brightly once you've seen God, once you've been in God. Then he says the statement, the world is unreal, has no meaning at all if it's taken in any literal way. It is a mystical statement, and no mystical statement is a statement of fact. This just goes back to that symbolic idea, that something has symbolic meaning. is not the same as it being a fact. So when, when somebody says the world is unreal, it has a meaning, but it's not a literal meaning. The world is unreal is sort of true and not true at the same time. And then he says, from the, from the point of view of the natural order, the divine is an illusion. From the point of view of the divine order, the natural world is an illusion. So when you're in the mystic experience, you, you, it, you cannot believe that what you thought was reality formerly is. And then when you fall back into that reality, it's hard to imagine that that mystical experience you just had is real. Right? It's like a very strange and paradoxical experience, and that is at the heart of religious experience. Paradox. We'll talk more about that. He says, if there is nothing outside the eternal moment, and remember that just means God, if there is nothing outside God, there can be no world of space and time. But when the mystic descends from the eternal moment, space and time force themselves upon him again. He cannot wholly deny the fact of their being there. The stronger his remembered sense of the eternal, the more illusory the world will seem to him. The more the vision fades, the more real the world will seem. So, so again, this is, this is the idea of, of having that mystical enlightenment, being God, experiencing that thing that's realer than real, then coming back to the old re reality and, and, and comparing the two and having this sense of disconnection. You can't, even though you just just a second ago were God and there was nothing outside of you and so there could, couldn't possibly be space and time and all of this then you fall back into it and you're like well shit here it is again I guess, I guess there is I guess it is possible and so you have this you have this you're firmly rooted in a paradox alright he says men in whom the divine is more or less submerged so by that he just means people who haven't yet had a mystical experience. He said, they do not originate such views of space of a, the space-time world. You're never going to hear somebody who hasn't had a mystic experience say, the world is an illusion. Time isn't real. You're not going to hear that from them. But you will hear that from a mystic, you know, uh, reliably. He says, but there is within them the potential of these views. For when they hear them, they receive them without incredulity. Anyone who has taught young students Plato's Republic or the Upanishads knows that they receive such views readily, sympathetically, and often with a kind of awe, because there is something in themselves which answers back. So what he's saying here is, even people who haven't had the mystic experience, if you 
talk to them about it. If you introduce them to those ideas through the Upanishads or the allegory of Plato's cave or something, even young, naive students without a lot of life experience, even they will not turn their nose up to it. These are rational beings that haven't been around long enough to, to you know, necessarily um, think that flexibly or that, uh, in, a, in, a, in a sophisticated religious way. You would expect those people to say, that's woo-woo, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to believe that. Imagine you when you were 19 years old in college and you took your first intro to philosophy class or something. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. You wouldn't think that a student who, who hears for the first time, um, you know, one of the Upanishads is going to, like, nod their head. You would think they're, they're going to raise their eyebrows. They're going to have some fucking questions, right? But he says that that's not what happens. You, that, that those people hear this for the first time and they, they're sympathetic to it. And they're in awe of it. They're fascinated by it. Why? So this goes back to that tuning fork reverb we were talking about. Their hearts, I hate to be this poetic, but their hearts sort of ring from, that, from that, those words. It's like there's something true here. I don't know what it is, but there's something to this. It's an intuition. And, and Stacy's saying that's proof that this mystical experience is there waiting to be unlocked in everybody. It's like you understand it unconsciously, even if you don't, you know, even if you've never heard of this idea before, you understand it unconsciously. He says, for Plato, the most real existences are the forms. They are the realities against the half-reality of the world of sense. So for Plato, the world of forms are the, are the perfect things. They, they're something close to that mystical experience. And then the waking world uh, becomes some sort of shadowy half-reality that's not as real as this, as this world of forms, but participates in it. He says, each, and he, he means each form, is the perfection of the things which participate in it. The world of forms shines with a divine light. Right? And this is just that idea that I can imagine, let's say, a perfect sphere in my mind. You know, that, that this is the world of forms, the, what, what Plato calls noose. Um, and the form, this perfect form, is something that exists really only in my consciousness, only in my mind. And I look around at the world and I see imperfect versions of that. I see a, a, you know, sort of circular stone. I see this sort of circular shape of your head. Um, you know, I can see that there are things that participate in this perfect form. Now, does that mean that the perfect form doesn't exist? Only this, these unperfect examples that I can actually touch and feel and see? Or is there some reality to the form in this world of forms, is there some reality to that that makes it possible for these imperfect versions to exist? And this is what makes the world seem like a half-reality when compared against this perfect uh, world of forms. The same analogy that, that you have when you try to conceptualize what reality means before and after mystic experience. He says, it is worth nothing that the unreality of the world is always connected with flux. Excuse me, I said nothing. It is worth noting, it is worth noting that the unreality of the world is always connected with flux, with change, with transformation. He says, in Plato's doctrine, it is always on becoming. 
that unreality is fastened. Okay, so this this is the contrast between being and becoming, right? It's kind of an interesting thought experiment. It's like, are you ever are you ever being? Are you ever one thing even for a second? Or are you always changing and transforming? That's becoming. Right? Because becoming is always changing, changing and transforming and moving. It's always um, fleeting. It's all. It's not something that is ever any. It's never one thing for long enough to be one thing. It's always flux and changing, and so it's always nothing. Right? It's it's not one thing. It's sort of nothing, and that's fucking weird. Right? He said it's this becoming idea that Plato attaches this this idea of unreality. He says, being is real. Becoming, because it participates in both being and non-being, is half real. So it gives you some other way of trying to understand it. Okay, he says, the unreality of the world is not a statement of fact. It is a purely mystical doctrine. What does that mean? That means it, it has symbolic meaning, not literal meaning. So the unreality of the world is a symbolic statement. It does mean something. It, it doesn't mean literally that the world doesn't exist. He says, not only the common man and the rationalistic philosopher, but even the mystic often, if not always, makes this mistake. So even the mystic comes to believe that when they have this feeling, this intuition, that the world isn't real now compared to this greater reality you know, in God, that that is a mistake. It's taking a symbolic uh, fact, literally. So it is a mistake even when the mystics say that. I think that's interesting because, because maybe because I am susceptible to this mistake. And I, I think about idealism as a philosophy, which says essentially that the phenomenal world, the world of experience, is an illusion. I don't exactly know what that means, what that, what it means to call it an illusion. Um, but I toy with it, and and I, I think I need to focus more on what that means, you know. Anyway, he says, this is but a particular case of the general principle that all religious propositions are symbolic, but come to be taken literally. This is everywhere the trap of the religious consciousness. And one of the causes of the ill repute idealistic philosophies have fallen into. Their assertion that the world is appearance, not reality, was taken as a factual statement. If it is, it is certainly a very strange fact, violently at variance with the evidence of the senses and reason. So when you fall back into the into the, into the normal world of space and time, when you fall back from being God into that experience, you, you really can't deny that there is reality to this, whatever this is. Whilst I was in that mystical experience, there was reality to that, of course. But it's hard for me to, uh, while I'm in either state, appreciate the other. And it's something like a paradox. God is something like a paradox. You know, the Ouroboros, Right. And that brings me to my next section, which is called the Divine Circle. All right. If God does not lie at the end of, 
any telescope. Neither does he lie at the end of any syllogism. <laughs> I love that. I can never, starting from the natural order, prove the divine order. The proof of the divine order must lie somehow within itself. It must be its own witness. And God is not without witness. Anything within the divine order must start from the divine order. The divine order, however, is within us. Right? We have that potential for the mystic experience in us. But we're in the natural order, so what does that mean? This is that intersection we talked about in the last episode. He says, God exists in the eternal moment, which is in every man. God is known by intuition. Revelation and intuition are two words for the same thing. And now he's going to start talking about religious beliefs. Not about religion, but about religious beliefs. And this is interesting. He says, religious beliefs are those propositions by means of which the intellect seeks to interpret to itself the ultimate experience. Religion is the experience, not the beliefs. And it has no meaning to speak of proving an experience. All right, so that last bit's interesting. It's like once you've had this experience of being God, there's no longer any reason to prove God's existence. It's like, um, how? what does it mean to prove an experience? Once you've had the experience, like I tried to say this to Kyle uh, once or twice, like faith doesn't really seem to have a place anymore. When you've had the experience, it's not a matter of faith. It's a matter of certainty, you know? So, again, religious beliefs. Remember, beliefs, he says, is not the same thing as experience. Religion, God, is an experience. Beliefs are something that we say about that experience to help us make sense of it. That's all he's saying. He's saying religious beliefs are those propositions by means of which the intellect seeks to interpret to itself the ultimate experience. That's your intellect trying to make sense of something that is that is completely impossible to make sense of. It can't, can't really be understood. It can only be experienced. And so the beliefs that, that we have that, that constitute our religion, like when we talk about religion in general, what we mean is like the things that we do and think differently from other people. Those are our religious beliefs. But those beliefs are different from the religious experience. That's the way we try to interpret the experience, the way we try to make sense of it. And that's going to vary from person to person. And so that's why there are different religions. So let's keep going. He says, I have argued that the different religions are the product of different geographical, cultural, and historical conditions interacting with the same basic religious intuitions. The differences lie in the interpretations, not in the intuitions themselves. It is the rational element which is at fault. At fault for what? At fault for giving us this idea, giving us the history of religious violence, let's say, giving us this idea that, uh, that somebody else's religion is somehow counter to uh, the well-being of the souls of others or something. It's like it, the fact that there are different religions and that that causes trouble in the world is, there, is the fault of our rational intellect. 
And it's so funny because, you know, atheist types would, would have a heyday with that statement. It's like, no, rational reason and rationality is the solution to this problem. It's not what got us into this problem. But no, it's like everybody has this potential for having a mystical experience. If you have it and then you try to explain it to yourself and others, you're going to come up with a different explanation than somebody else, even though the experience is identical. And it reminds me, because we're talking about the intellect being the, the thing at fault here, it reminds me of the Bible talking about intellect as Luciferian, like Lucifer is the brightest of all the angels, uh, the highest of all the angels. Um, and we, we think about you know intellectually arrogant people and how, how easy it is for them to um, think too highly of themselves and find themselves in all kinds of trouble. This is that Luciferian pride that we talk about. And it's exactly that. It's this, it's this putting too much faith and relying too much on this capacity of reason that has given us um, different religions when there, there need only be one. After all, the experience is one. All right, he goes on. He says, though religious feeling is intuitive, the system of beliefs which has its source in them is subject to the order and control of reason. In exactly the same way, scientific beliefs are based on, a, on sense experience. Well, that's interesting. He says, science is an interpretation of sense experience. In the same way, religious beliefs are interpretation of mystical experience. Neither the sense experience nor the religious experience is in itself rational. The function of reason in both cases is the interpretation. All right, so this is interesting. It's like experience, sense experience, is in some ways like mystical experience. It is experience. Um, however, there's really no scientific explanation for experience. Experience implies consciousness, and consciousness does not supervene on the physical, as David Chalmers uh, argued in his book, The Conscious Mind. Consciousness can't be explained by the laws of physics. It's a mystery. So sense experience is, is as much of a mystery as mystical experience. And, and we have to interpret it. We have to interpret it somehow. We have to make sense of it somehow. And we call that science in the case of sense experience. And we call that religion in the case of mystical experience. <laughs> I just think that's an interesting analogy. He says, there is no logical reasoning which will carry us from the natural order to the divine order. God is either known by revelation, by intuition, or not at all. And revelation is not something which took place in the past. It takes place in every moment and in every heart and reaches its climactic moment in the illumination of the mystic. Now, I find that interesting because... Like I said earlier, it's, it's like a common belief that revelation is something that happened in the ancient of days. It's not something that happens now. We don't hear the voice of God. We don't see angels. That kind of thing doesn't happen now. And Stacy's saying, you got it all wrong. Revelation, you know, you can describe it any way you want and paint it up with any pictures you want. But revelation, that, that whatever that actual thing is, happens every moment in every heart for all time. And that brings me to the next section. 
which is called mysticism and logic. All right, he says, we may be inclined to express that in the very nature of the ultimate, there is a contradiction. All right, this is the idea of how can being be non-being? This is the Ouroboros. This is that religious paradox, right? How can I have this mystical experience and be God and be one and, and be that which, is there, which there is no other and then fall back into this world that is other from that? It's like, how can, that, how can they both be true? There's a paradox in, in religious experience. There's a paradox in the idea of God. And he says... That, we sh- that what we should say is that the contradictions are in us, right? Ooh, right? The contradictions aren't in the idea of God. The contradictions are in us. He says they arise from the attempt to comprehend the ultimate by logical concepts. The ultimate rejects these concepts, and when we seek to force them upon it, the only result is that our thinking becomes contradictory. Right? God is infinite. He can't be, the idea can't be captured by concepts. If we're trying to use concepts to understand it, we're, we're never really understanding the thing we're trying to understand. We're never really speaking about the thing we're trying to describe. That's what the Taoists say when they say the Tao that can be spoken of is not the real Tao. So there's a paradox, there's contradiction. And that has, that has to do with the space between the natural order and the divine order. You know, the divine order is beyond concepts. He says, The reader of mystic utterances can scarcely fail to be struck by the fact that mystic consciousness constantly expresses itself in paradoxical language. According to Jacob Bohm, quote, The eternal yes and the eternal no lie together in the ultimate nature of God. Then he says the Upanishads, which are perhaps the earliest mystical utterances in history, are full of self-contradictory language. So here's, a, here's an example. The one, though motionless, is swifter than the mind. It moves and it moves not. So motion, of course, symbolizes the creativeness of God, which is an element of the positive divine while the absence of motion symbolizes his unchangeableness, which is an element of the negative divine. Why are the two contradicting predicates thrust together? How is it possible for something to be moving and not moving? For something to be flux and unchangeable? Why are these two contradicting predicates thrust together? That brings me to my conclusion. Why indeed? Because to do so forces a particular kind of contemplation, an irrational contemplation, one that might never arise unprovoked. To unify opposites in words allows one to imagine what that unity might be, to imagine it might be something even if it cannot be rationally understood. It makes present before the mind the vaguest hint of something within us which beckons. This paradox is a religious symbol. It stands as a bridge between the divine and natural orders. 
It points to the potential for the mystic experience. And it resonates like the tuning fork with our deepest intuitions. Those vibrations are a whisper. They are a secret we tell to ourselves. They are the unconscious wordlessly drawing our attention to something that is yet to be realized. Now, it's not lost on me that one of my great heroes, Carl Jung, devoted his life to an identical goal. He sought to make the unconscious conscious. He imagined this to be an endless potentiality, a font of psychic treasure, as if consciousness might journey eternally into the darkness within and there find life and purpose and meaning and even one's true self. But what is that self? It is a mystery. The great mystery, in fact. It is what Stacy calls the mystic experience, which is God. Both Stacy and Jung conceive it to be a wholeness, a totality. Both understood it to be one. The self which is not myself, but also is. And thus we come full circle round the tail of the Ouroboros and return to paradox. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know, it's not easy work, thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.